0: Tonight's first reading is from Isaiah 29, verses 9 to 21. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give it the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? In a very short time will not Lebanon be turned into fertile field and the fertile field seem like forest. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, And out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, They they will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice.
1: Uh second reading is in 1 Corinthians and we're reading from chapter 1 verse 18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate where is the wise man where is the scholar where is the philosopher of this age For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word.
2: Uh, evening then, my name's uh, Matt. If we've not met, uh, I'd love to meet you afterwards. love to say hello. Um, But um, I think we're going to need to pray, given that God destroys the wisdom of the wise. Well, I see that's happened to some here already. But uh, for those of us who've still got a a modicum of wisdom left, uh, let's pray that God helps us understand what's here. Father, here is truth that is humbling to the human spirit. And so our prayer would be, Father, by your spirit, would you open our eyes. To understand the truth of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it struck me over recent years that I I have become somewhat of a conversation stopper, (laughs) which is disappointing. Uh in in my former existence I was a school teacher for uh, half a dozen years and uh, which I loved and enjoyed enormously as uh, being a school teacher. And it's one of those professions you you meet someone over dinner, just in a pub, and then oh, and eventually it comes out and what do you do? Oh I'm a school teacher. Oh school teacher, yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite teacher was Mr. Brown and he taught me physics and I used to laugh being at the back of the chemistry lab and we'd burn things and set them on fire, and those were the days and I had a great time at school and you know, off you go. It's very easy to talking to people about school and things like that. Now it's a bit different. Go for dinner, uh, meet someone in the pub, and what do you do? I'm a vicar. <laughs> and you see the horror. I have reduced the most socially able men and women to panic. <laughs> because you see it flicker across their faces. Oh, no. Now what do I do? What's the follow-up comment to that? Well, that's interesting, which, you know, of course, in the English language is the most uh, expandable word out. You know, you go to see a performance of something extraordinary. That was interesting. You know, it can mean anything, can't it? That's interesting. But people don't feel so comfortable talking to someone who's a pastor, minister, whatever you want to call it, um, as opposed to a teacher. The, The points of reference aren't quite the same. And you come to a passage such as this, and of course, Paul would say, of course that's the case. The message of Christianity is unsettling. And if you're a Christian, or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's still something in the fact that a message that in order to get to heaven, you you have to trust in a man who died 2,000 years ago, a criminal's death. If you're a Christian, you're very familiar with that. We sing about it all the time. But when you stop and think about it, and if you're not a Christian, that is odd. That that's what we have to trust in? It's foolishness, Paul would say. And I would imagine for Christians here, n- no doubt most Christians at some point, someone will say, uh, okay, so, so you're a Christian, what does that mean? And you find yourself explaining the central truths that uh, I'm a sinner, I deserve God's punishment. Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago on the cross. And there's something in you that thinks, how would anyone take this seriously? It just happened so long ago. And they're looking at you as if to say, you got a PhD and you believe that? Seriously? I don't think it's just me that feels that way at times. And Paul would say, yeah, don't be surprised. Because when you survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, your riches gain, you count as loss, and there, it pours contempt on your pride. It's designed God has designed his message of salvation. He's designed the way that you can be saved from hell for heaven forever. as if I can put it in these terms without being irreverent, ridiculous as a message of salvation, as a mechanism. That's what Paul is going to say here. Now, if you're joining us tonight and weren't here last week, why not? <laughs> Just put it in your diary, repeat. Anyway, now if you are joining us last night, tonight and you weren't here last week, we began uh, looking at this book of 1 Corinthians, which in uh, various chunks we'll look at uh, over the course of the year. As we said, uh, Corinth is an exciting city in many ways, very similar to London, as one person put it. Uh, Corinth was the New York, the Las Vegas, and the Los Angeles of the day rolled together. It's the finance capital of the region, the entertainment capital of the region. It's the hedonism center of the Roman world in that part of town. It's a great place. It's a fun place. But the issue is that the church is being squeezed into the mold of the culture. And so we said, uh, I can't get them out every week, but, well, um, uh, maybe I can. The, uh, we said, if you hear here last week, you missed it, so you have to get it. The, uh, the church was being squeezed into the mold of the world. That's the world. It's round. And not being squeezed into the mold of Jesus. Now, I don't know much about baking. That is evidence to anyone who knows me. But I know if you try and bake in this, it comes out one shape, and this, it comes out another shape. Or you really are very bad at baking. And the church is being squeezed into the mold of the world rather than being shaped by their relationship, by their knowledge of Jesus Christ. The band will thank me for those later. That's the issue. And that takes place in a whole number of different ways. So chapters one to four, uh the section we're in, they're all about groupies. They're, they 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 sort of follow their leaders and it's causing divisions in the church. You will see broadly five to seven is about their sexual behaviour. Uh a chapter is uh, eight to ten, all about um Uh, really, whether they're sort of asserting themselves or or loving one another, 11 and 12, uh, all about their gifts, uh, excuse me, 12 to 14, all about their gifts and so on. They're being squeezed into the pattern of the world. But in this section, verses 1 to 4, it's about their leaders. All sorts of divisions in the church because they get very excited about different preachers and preaching styles. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the city of Corinth at the time. At the time, public speaking is a big deal. You might go and watch it is Manchester United play Liverpool but far more interesting is to go and watch Socrates debate with Heracles in the public forum that's your public entertainment of the day but the emphasis upon the public speakers the orators is not so much what they say but how well they say it how poetical how persuasive how many sonnets um, you know couplets doublets whatever you, you that's not right is it uh, sorry, doublet's a thing. The, uh, how many, um, h- how many sort of rhetorical flourishes you can add to your public speaking. That's the issue. Now, that doesn't really work today because we don't really value public speaking in quite the same way. But let me give you one silly example. Years ago, uh, when I was a school teacher, I, uh, was master in charge of debating. Get me. Um, I did also run the first 11 football, just, so you know, but, uh, I was also master in charge of debating, uh, for whatever reason. And um, one year we had a very strong team, two very you have to back up, but essentially two very impressive lads. And the national school competition is the Observer Mace Public Speaking Competition. That's the sort of and you get a big Mace if you win, um, and accolades. Um, and we got all the way to the final. And the debate in the final was about should Britain return its overseas territories? You know, um, places like uh, Falklands, inevitably, but British Virgin Islands, uh, or one or two other places, I can't even remember now. But um, should we return them, or, or should we grant them independence? And we were opposing the motion. And you watch this debate, and you listen to it to, going back and forth, and you think, yeah, we've lost this. Yeah, they've, they've done well. The opposition, they've, they've got us here. Uh, no, we're not going to win. And then one lad uh, just pulled out. Uh, in his closing summation, Daniel McCarty, he's a very bright man, uh, pulled out of uh, his closing summation, just said, well, the, uh, the others here, they've made some very strong arguments about the economy and the numbers and how uh, uh, that'll benefit if these territories are given independence and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they'll make more money, essentially. But let me just quote you from Macaulay's PhD on the matter of the economics of overseas territories and quoted all these stats to show it would be disaster economically. And we won. We won the Observer Mace. <laughs> you know, the, um, uh, this, this, this is quite a big deal. But after, so I went up to him and said, where did you get that from? We, we never had any of that. When we prepped this debate, you never had any of that material. He said, oh, it's just, it just, it just like the Radio Times. He just pulled a magazine out and just completely made it up. <laughs> just a complete, complete load of nonsense. And said, so would won this competition on a lie. Um, Yeah, you're appalled, good. Um, But that is Corinthian debating. Who cares about whether it's true? Who cares about the content? Is it good? Does it win? Does it persuade you? That's the issue going on in Corinth. Now we need to understand, understand that to understand what exactly Paul is writing against now no one cares that much about debating today but the issue becomes this for you and me today some people had arrived in Corinth and they heard the Christian message and they said yeah what Paul told you is all right but Corinth is such a glitzy ritzy city if they're going to become Christians we just need to sex up the message a little bit because that message of a man dying 2,000 years ago, well, it wouldn't have been then, would it? That, the message of a man dying 50 years ago, that does not that's not going to persuade anyone. No one's going to become a believer saying, Jesus has died for their sins. We need to sex up the message, give it a bit more razz and mataz, and uh, that'll work. And the outcome in chapters 1 to 4 is division. So this section, chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 421, it's all about division that has taken place because the Corinthians have their different favored, whizzy leaders who put the best spin, who are best at sexing up the Christian message in order to make it more adaptable, more persuasive. Now that is something that you can find all over this city. You can't preach... Jesus died for your sins. You can't preach, Jesus took the wrath of God upon the cross. People won't accept that. You have to tell them, well, Jesus will make your life a bit better. Jesus will make you a nicer person. As Astab uh, was saying in a Rwandan culture, it's quite blatant come to Jesus, you'll be wealthier. You've got to sex it up a little bit, you've got to make it a bit more attractive if people are going to become Christians, and Paul is saying, don't do that. You see chapter 1, verse 17, he's very, very clear on that. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If it's just human wisdom, literally words of wisdom, if it's just a nice sounding message, But isn't Jesus dying for you? You have robbed the cross of all its power and it can't do anyone any good. Don't do that, he says. Now three sections really, and they make the the similar point in each of them. There's a foolish message, a foolish people, a foolish preacher. But before we get into the detail, let me just show you, they're all really making the same point. The point is God wants to destroy human boasting and human self-reliance. That's what he wants to do. So just look down with me just so you get the the, the big idea of what's going on. So chapter 1, verse 18, a foolish message. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. Why has God created a foolish message? Verse 19, because for it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. God has designed a foolish message. A foolish message so that proud people have to stop being proud. It's a foolish people, 126 to 31. Look down at just verse 27, talking about the Corinthian church. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. Why? Verse 29 So that, because in order that, here's the purpose of choosing unimpressive people, so that no one may boast before him. So the proud have to stop being proud. Same point. And again, a foolish preacher. Chapter 2, verse 4. My message and my preaching will not be wise and persuasive words, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So, you don't boast in man, but you boast in God. Same point all the time. God communicates his message of salvation in a foolish way. Foolish message. I'm struggling with that one. Foolish message. Foolish people. That's you and me. Foolish preacher. So that no one can say, I'm an impressive Christian. But everyone has to say, I'm desperately in need of Jesus. So just so we're clear, the whole point of this passage tonight is to pour contempt on our pride. So if you go away feeling proud, oops, don't do that. Let's have at it. Let's go into the detail. Three things then, they're essentially making the same point. But a foolish message, verses uh, 118 to 25, a foolish message. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But there's a great division here. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why? We've said to destroy the wisdom of the wise. That was always God's intention. So Paul could say, well, verse 20, where's the wise man? It's a reference to the Greeks, really. Where's the scholar? It's a reference to the Jews. Where's the philosopher of this age? That's a catch-all title. No, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world is a great level of the cross. People want to boast in themselves or their achievements. In fact, he tells us verse twenty two what people love to boast in. Verse twenty two Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. So Jews want the spectacular. That's true in Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 12. Teacher, give us a sign that we might know that you're Messiah. No. No, he says. That's well, still the same get. People love the spectacular. It's hard to, uh, I cycle everywhere around London. Of course you cycle anywhere. You see on the back of every, not every bus, but it's hard to do a journey of any sense cycling in London without seeing on the back of a bus, come along to a night of miracles, healings, the spectacular at the O2 so was it the O2? Must be something about that place. Um, there's just always these things taking place. People love the spectacular. They go, Wow, isn't that amazing what people can do? People will love that, Paul says. Or Greeks will look for wisdom. Some will want demonstrations of academic prowess. How many PhDs have you got in your church? How bright are the people? Are they all thickies to believe in Jesus? I only want to join a church where the people are really intelligent. The similarity between both of them, I think, is that Jesus has to fit their system. All right, yeah, I'm looking at the Christian faith. Uh, and I might deign to become a Christian on my terms. As long as I have, don't have to change very much. As long as Jesus fits my system. Minimal disruption to me please. But it can't be that way because verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. That is a stumbling block or he is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, of course he is. If you're a Christian, you're just too familiar with Jesus being crucified really for it to make sense, I guess. Think of it this way. Uh, Someone arrives in London on a graduate training scheme with a uh, high-profile multinational company. And they arrive on the training scheme. And uh, for 10 days, they're just given the full works. As the firm, the corporation says, come into our glitzy offices and see the power of our company. And every mealtime is fabulous white tablecloths. And you dine every night at the top of the Shard or at Michelin-starred restaurants. And they say, graduates, welcome to our scheme. You have joined whatever you want to be, bank X, accountancy firm X, you know, consultancy firm X, it's the same, whatever it is, you've joined the mighty, Woo, be impressed with us, be impressed with us, and that's often the way, isn't it? Um, uh, got quite the same if you become an apprentice here at church, you know. <laughs> Someone have a picnic in the park, doesn't quite do it. Um, but, you know, the, the, sort of the glitzy training schemes take place. And then, you know, oh, wow, so impressive, so much money. Look at the figures. Oh, everyone I've met is so bright and so whizzy. And golly, they work 25 hours a day. It's amazing how they do that. It's also very impressive. And then someone wanders in and said, okay, uh, all the new graduates with me, please. You get on a bus and go down to somewhere in, I don't know, Peckham. And... Uh, a run-down um, manufacturing estate and a few gangs there taking drugs and you think, well, not this so much. They go into one of the warehouses and pigeons are flying around everywhere, the whole floor's covered in muck. And then right at the back of the warehouse, swinging from a steel joist, is a man in a noose swinging And the guide says, that is wisdom. Ignore everything you've seen this week. That is wisdom. And that's what it felt like in the first century. What are you talking about? I have to trust a man who's died for me on a cross. I live in Corinth. But that's wisdom. The offensive nature of the cross might be lost on us if you've been a Christian a long time. But God has designed the message this way because it is just about the most offensive way that God can say to you and me, you are lost. You cannot save yourself. You must trust me. When well, a man died on a cross, a, man, a criminal executed, that's how I get to heaven. You must Trust me. That's ridiculous. To you it might be. You must trust me. It's yeah, a foolish message. But you must not, cannot marginalize the message of the cross. Of course, got to, you know, you and I, if you're a Christian, we've got to explain what Jesus did in language that people understand. It's no good using antiquated language. And by that, it could be just mean the language of 20 years ago, the way our culture is going. You've got to use language that people understand, of course. But the cross will always humble us. The cross destroys the wisdom of the wise. The cross says your best efforts cannot get you to heaven. But in Corinth back then, that that message wasn't playing so well. And they wanted to jazz it up a bit. Or water down what Jesus did a bit. And that's still the case. It's amazing that uh, uh, in Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov uh, obviously, he's writing, you know, it's <laughs> decades ago. Um, uh, Dostoevsky imagines Jesus returning to 16th century Spain. So this an imaginary, convers- imaginary scene. Jesus returns to Spain in the 16th century, and there he meets uh, hostility. He's not welcome. He's arrested. And he's, uh, um, because the reason being, the church of the 16th century Spain has shifted and decided, we need to change Jesus' message somewhat. So the, the, uh, the grand inquisitor, who is uh, sort of putting Jesus on trial, says to Jesus, you know, we have to stop calling people to repent of sins. Your message is too difficult. So what we do today is we give people earthly bread, not bread of heaven. We offer religious miracles, not faith in the word of God. We exert temporal power here and now, rather than serving people like you did. Jesus, we have corrected your work To make it easier for people to believe in you. You see his point. That is a biting satire that Dostoevsky was making, and he's mocking the phenomenon he saw in his day of just what Jesus teaches, what the New Testament teaches. It's so hard for people to believe. Let's just water it down, let's just add some stuff that makes it easier to believe. And sexing up the message of the cross made it more popular. Now you you know that in this city that still takes place. It's a timeless truth. That's why it's recorded in the Bible, of course. And Western evangelical churches often run in fads. It's quite easy to be excited by the latest idea or personality. Have you heard this amazing preacher? You must go and hear him everyone's life is transformed over there have you heard about uh, whatever it's a few years ago have you heard the jellyfish man have you heard about the jellyfish man and how he died and came back to life again when he was stung by a jellyfish it's amazing everyone must go and see him and then he'll be uh then they'll become christians you've heard about this new empowering wave of the spirit you have to go to this location at 8 p.m on a tuesday night and then the spirit moves and turns you know and it's faddish And any of these things, they might be okay, but anything that moves the cross to the periphery, when people get excited by anything which is not Jesus Christ crucified for them, when that message gets moved to the sidelines and something else becomes the most exciting thing, you've robbed the cross of its power and it can't save anyone. Don't do that. Verse twenty-four, but here's the contrast: uh, the message of the cross—it's foolish to many, but but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom; the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It looks so foolish what Jesus did, but it is unbelievably powerful. And the message of the cross, literally the word of the cross, or verse 18, the message of the cross is powerful to save, even though it looks so foolish, so weak. Imagine if you could, imagine you went back to Corinth uh, in the year, whatever we're talking about now, probably around 55 AD. You go back to Corinth in 53, 55 AD, and you turn up with a machine gun and uh, um, why would you anyway run with it you turn up with a machine gun and a hundred Roman centurions say we're going to arrest you and you say no you won't for I have a machine gun and they say what is your puny piece of metal it is foolish and weak and you go and um, actually it's not so weak it's very powerful that's a grim metaphor isn't it or a grim illustration but Paul is saying it looks so feeble so weak it's so powerful The message of the cross can move people from hell to heaven forever. What an extraordinary message that is. Can you imagine if a word that you spoke could move people from London to San Francisco in a minute? That would be amazing. You'd make a lot of money with that sort of word. You can move from London to Sydney in a minute. Imagine how extraordinary a word such as that would be. Amazing. Get over those horrific long-haul flights. You don't have to do them anymore. That would be a terrific word of power. This word moves people from hell to heaven forever. That's the power of the message of the cross. Don't dumb it down. Don't sex it up. Don't change it. It's powerful. It's a foolish message. I struggle with that. A foolish message. Now, the next two points make the same thing very similarly, so I think we can go uh, a little faster. Second, though, a foolish people, 126 to 31. Now, this is an ouch to an arrogant, confident people. Brothers, brothers, and think of what you were when you were called... Not many of you are wise by human standards, not many influential, not many noble, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now that's got to recalibrate our expectations somewhat. Famously, Paul Hears doesn't say not any were wise, not any were noble, but not many. So you can have a PhD and be a Christian, which is a relief to a number in this room. Not that makes you wise, it just makes you bright, it's very different. But um, not many, not many. You need to just recognize what he's saying there. But what are we to boast in? Verse 30. Not to boast before him. But it is because of God the Father that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, holiness and redemption. That's wisdom. God redefines wisdom not in worldly categories but in salvation categories. Re- righteousness in a court of law no longer condemned but accepted. Righteous. Or a holiness in the temple no longer defiled and unacceptable before the Lord, but holy and acceptable. And redeemed, the language of the slave market, no longer enslaved, but free. Salvation categories, that is wisdom. And therefore, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in yourself. You cannot be a Christian and boast in your own achievements. Not for salvation. And if you've really understood the Christian faith, not for anything not boast in what you've achieved. You know God has given everything to you. But certainly in salvation. We uh, had the fun and privilege of... Um uh, going to Australia on holiday. I uh, was sent for work and so uh, uh, we managed to tack on a couple of weeks of holiday uh, in August in Australia. Um, and uh, we went up north to Cairns. where it's nice and warm because uh, it's very cold in Sydney this time of year. It's winter, fair enough. I uh, we went up north uh, and I uh, had a fun week. On our way back, we had one night, we'd stay with friends and then self cater and we had one night in a hotel. And we booked into a fairly pleasant hotel in Cairns because uh, it had a swimming pool, and if the weather's nice, you want a swimming pool, and you can't swim in the sea because it's full of crocodiles and they eat you. So we went for someone which had quite a nice uh, swimming pool. And so we turned, you know, just a very basic room for three of us to sleep in. We turned up, and they, oh, yeah, Mr. oh yes, Mr. Fellow, we, we're delighted to tell you that uh, we've upgraded you. Oh, great. To the presidential suite. Oh, okay. Thinking, you know, what does that mean? Um, great. So We went upstairs. And, you know, get taken in. Oh, right. This is a suite. I thought you just meant quite a nice room. Maybe the shower worked really well or something. <laughs> it was bigger than our house. 1,700 square foot of presidential suite. It was enormous. And the facilities and the luxury and the plushness were extraordinary although it was a bit of a pain actually it was just far too big you know our our son was on a rollaway bed in the sort of main lounge bit and he said I can't go to sleep the main lounge was this sort of size of the church but it was all right because we rolled his bed into our cupboard (laughs) the cupboard which was larger than his bedroom at home so he was happy and uh, all was well. But also it was a bit of a pain because you think, where, am, where are my swim shorts? They're in the other room. <laughs> Which actually isn't what you wanted a hotel. But anyway, when we went back downstairs, I, said, me, I went to the guy and said, excuse me, why have, you put us in this, why have you given us this upgrade? We just like to do it sometimes. Yeah, but why us? We just, that's just how we operate. We like to do it sometimes, sir. But how often do you do it? Oh, just occasionally, sir. But is it because, you know, it's something about our status or, you know... About our passports. Do you love Brits? No. and um, (laughs) Didn't say that. Um, Why? Why have you upgraded us? We just like to do it sometimes, sir. Yeah, but but there's obviously some reason why you've done it. And then my wife, Carrie, said, will you just shut up and enjoy it? (laughs) And it comes to the cross. I mean, why why has God opened my eyes to see how wonderful Jesus is? Why? Why, why? What, What is it about me what is it that I've done? What is it that I've achieved? What is it that I'm, am I cleverer than anyone else? More intelligent than someone else? i sort of more humble than, what is it that I've done to help me understand who Jesus, nothing. It's just a gift. Would you please enjoy it? Because the people, Christians, you and me, are pretty foolish. Foolish message, foolish people. Last, let's finish it off. A foolish preacher, chapter two, one to five. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The emphasis here really is on the content. It's not that he's a rubbish preacher, that he stood up and said, Now I am going to speak for two hours in a voice like this. It's not that, because he can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he did everything he could to persuade them. He does try to persuade them, it's the content. He proclaims God's testimony, what he's been given. And he proclaims Christ Jesus crucified. That's what's foolish about the preacher. His content. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. It wasn't the power of my oratory. I wasn't trusting in my own skills as a communicator. I was trusting in God and the message of the cross. Let me just draw it together. Three, three sort of points in one sense to take away of application. First is this pride. Let me just ask you this question: If you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, forgive me, but is it because you're too proud? Don't hate me. But Paul has just said the reason lots of people don't become Christians is they're too proud. And the Christian faith is not a bar you have to jump over. It's a bar you have to go under. You have to humble yourself. There's something very humbling about crunching down and going under a bar. It's humiliating. You're the queen, magnificent, the longest reigning monarch ever. If you go, okay, queen, you now get under that bar. It's a foot high. Well, that's humiliating. It's same for you and me. You have to humble yourself to become a Christian. But actually, if you do something, I mean, I'm not going to try and limbo for you. You do something like a limbo, you look an idiot. Well, if you're a Brit, you look an idiot. Perhaps if you're in the Bahamas, you can do it quite well. But a Brit, you look like an idiot. It's very humbling as you fall over. But it fills your life with laughter. And there's a sense in which, oh, I don't want to push it too hard. But if you become a Christian, you do have to humble yourself to say, I, I need Jesus to die for me. It's the only way I'll be acceptable before God. But it's humbling to admit that. But once you've done so, it does fill your life with laughter. You don't take yourself as seriously as before. You can laugh at yourself a lot more. Oh, and for those of us who are Christians, don't be surprised when the Christian message is laughed at. It will be. It's always been. It always will be. Pride. And then uh, warning for Christians is the second thing. Uh, a warning for Christians, just... If you find yourself in a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, try and speak of the cross, Paul would say. Don't hide it. It's Christianity's embarrassing secret. You have to trust this man who's died for you. Don't stop embarrassing. Or the classic one some of us do when you arrive in a new job or arrive in a new city. You think, oh, I'm a Christian, but I won't tell anyone yet I'm a Christian. I'll let them realize that I'm really cool, and then I'll reveal that I'm a Christian when they like me. Let me tell you that backfires for a number of reasons. Most of them, not many of us are as cool as we think. <laughs> Speak of the cross. That's where the power of the gospel is. This is a little warning for Christians. But here's an encouragement for Christians. You don't have to be an expert to tell people about Jesus. You just need to tell them that he was crucified for them. And they need to trust him. Oh, and more questions will come, I'm sure, if you have that conversation. But you look through the Bible at the great preachers or the great men of God in the Bible and Moses says I can't preach for toffee God says get on with it and I'll have Aaron help you and Isaiah says I can't preach I'm a man of unclean lips and God says get on with it and Jeremiah says I don't know how to speak and God says get on with it and all of them say but I can't tell people about you Lord and God says oh get on with it yes you can I'll give you the strength to do so you don't have to be an expert you just need to believe the message of the cross. Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. The message of Jesus Christ being crucified for you can absolutely transform your life. You believe that? That is the power of God enters into your life and changes your destination forever don't change it, don't be ashamed of it, don't be embarrassed of it share the message of the cross because it's powerful to save let me lead us in prayer Our God and Father, you know for us where this cuts. And uh, I'm sure in this room there are some of us who are conscious that we're not Christians and we're not sure what to make of this foolish message. Father, please help us to, in that group, to think it through harder, to understand why it is that you've dev- designed a message to save this way. For those of us who are Christians, would you help us again to have confidence in that very simple message? Jesus died and was crucified for my sins, so that I get his righteousness. Would you help us have real confidence in that, as powerful, as able to save people? Father, would you help us as a church never get distracted or push it to the margins, never feel we have to sex it up, dumb it down, water it down. But trust you and the power that flows through the message of the cross as your spirit applies it to people's lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.